0: Hey, what's up? This is Matt Markin and it's time for episode 60 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Jazzy Magonzo Murphy from American River College and Jamie Ingle from DePaul University is guest hosting to interview returning guest, Dr. George Steele. If you don't already, show some love and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Now, here's episode 60. At episode 60, and it's the month of June, last month into this month, many have or will soon be saying goodbye to our graduating students. But is there really downtime? Probably not, because we either have orientation starting this week or real soon as we welcome our newest cohorts into our institutions. Either way, I really hope you're doing well. I truly mean that. Let's do our best to enjoy this summer, and let's get to our first interview with the wonderful Jazzy Magonzo Murphy. Okay, let's welcome Jazzy Magonzo Murphy, pronouns she, they, bro, and sis, who is a thriving institutional strategist, a change manager, and authentic leader. A proud third-generation Sacramentan, Jazzy knows the power in lifting as you climb and strives to always center humanity at the core of her work. Jazzy currently serves as the Dean of Student Services at American River College, a community college in Sacramento where she oversees outreach, orientation, success coaches, student life, and completion programming. Jazzy is also the CEO of A3 Education Consulting, an educational consulting firm with a mantra that believes in the student development process that centers students' journey to arrive, aspire, and achieve with a focus on preparing 9th through 12th grade families for post-high school transition as a seasoned higher education practitioner, she also has the perfect blend of personal and professional expertise that schools, organizations, and families can rely on to get the job done with style. Jazzy, welcome to the
1: podcast. Matt, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like I'm in community with my people again. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: Yeah, no, and it was great to connect with you at the Region 9 and CalCan Conference back in March. Um, you know, I've I've had you on, on my list of like, I have to get Jazzy on this podcast. You know, listeners are going to love to hear from Jazzy. So glad that this worked out. And so usually yeah, our probably. first question we we throw out there is tell us about your path, your journey um, into higher ed and academic advising and where you're at now.
1: Yeah, that's uh, such a good question. Um, and there's so many ways to to go with your story. I'll, I'll just start by saying there's so much power in our stories, um, particularly for our students and for new professionals who are jumping into this field. Um, they tend to see us leaders all put together and, you know, think we have it all figured out, but we all have that kind of messy story, messy journey that, that got us to, to where we are. And so thank you for this question. Cause I, I I'm always excited to have an opportunity to share a little bit about, you know, my story. So I'm from Sacramento, as you mentioned, third generation um, grew up here, Uh, Went to high school here, was an athlete, um, and that was really the driving focus of my life, you know, at that time. Um, But like a lot of teenagers, I think I'm very stubborn and and thought I had it all figured out. And that created a bit of a rift, you know, between me and my family at a a pretty young adolescent age. And so um, I ended up graduating high school late. Um, I graduated a semester late. Um, And I think at that point I was kind of like, I'm done with education. I'm done with school, like forget sports. I was just like, I just want to be, I just want to work and make money is what I thought I was going to do. And so I um, just started working little, you know, random jobs, check cashing target, things like that. And um, I, I before I knew it, like I was pregnant with my daughter. I was, Uh, 19, 20 years old. All I had was my high school diploma and I had a bit of a panic set in. I was like, hey, this isn't the life that I want for myself. This isn't the life that I want for my kid. Um, I've got to figure something out. And so begrudgingly, you know, I returned or entered higher education and I started at Sacramento City College, uh, which is another one of the Los Rios campuses up here in Sac. And I just went Like with the mindset of like, I just need anything that's not a high school diploma. Give me a certificate. Give me a a credential, anything, you know what I mean, that I can take to an employer to show that, you know, I'm a good quality employee. So I started really focusing on office administration. Uh, My mom was an elementary school secretary for most of my life. And so I kind of grew up in office environments and I was like, I could do that. And so I started down that path. And I think like most students, I was like, well, what about this other class? Like, it's not part of my path, but you know, I'm kind of interested in it. And I started taking a bunch of speech communication classes and just absolutely fell in love, like with the, with the studies, with the theories and was like, okay, I'm going to be a communication major. I want to be something bigger than, um, you know, just getting my certificate. But I knew I needed to get to work immediately. I, like I literally had a human being growing inside of me. And so there was like time was of the essence. And so I just I really wasn't sure about, um, you know, you know, long term higher ed. But um, I ended up having my daughter while I was still um, at Sac City. And that really opened up the door for me to join a bunch of our support programs. So I was in EOPNS, which is EOP at the CSU Um, there's a sub, like a subsidiary program for parents. I was low income at that time. So I was in all of these programs, getting a bunch of resources. Um, and that was like really the first time that I met a counselor or an advisor. Um, and he sat me down as, as we do and, you know, looked at my transcript and was like, you've got a lot going on here. Like, what do you want to do? I was like, I just, you know, I need to get to work as soon as possible. And he said, you know, if you take this one more class, you could transfer to Sac State. Um, And for me, you know, being uh, kind of first generation, never really saw myself on the path to higher ed, for someone to say, we see you and we see you at the university level was like the first time that that had ever happened to me. So I kind of sat with it and I was like, okay, I mean, well, what's one more class? I said, well, what's the class? (laughs) And of course, it's the class that (laughs) no transfer student, no communication major wants to hear, it was stats. And I was like, I'm never going to make it. I'm just, I'm, I'm never going to get to the four year. Um, but I got very lucky. And and I had this instructor. His name was Sellers um, rest in peace. I believe he's passed now, but he taught statistics in a way that made sense to me as an athlete. And I ended up passing the class transferred to Sac state. Um, and I was at Sac state and orientation was mandatory at that time. And I'm sitting there and there are all these student leaders um, introducing themselves. So it's like maybe 50 student leaders up there, high energy, just fired up about the campus. And I said at that moment, like, I'm going to get that job. Like, I don't know what that job is, but I like it. I want to help people. I like to talk. I got good energy. Like, I want to figure out how to get that job. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I started at Sac State um, working in the financial aid office because as you know, summer orientation only happens in the summer. So I needed to do something before. Um, I started working in the financial aid office, which was phenomenal. I mean, just great experience. And I felt like it was that one piece that nobody really understood. It was super complicated. It kind of felt like the work happened behind the curtain. Um, and I just wanted to know more about it and kind of be a resource to other students who were like me that were trying to figure out how to finance this thing. Um, and so I did that uh, for my first year at Sac State. And that summer, um, I became an orientation leader and. Again, just one of those uh, destiny points in my life that uh, positioned me to, to move forward in higher ed. So I was an orientation leader that first summer. Absolutely loved it. Just oriented thousands of students, met parents. But I also got to meet like really cool people that worked at the college. So I was meeting advisors. I was meeting directors of advising, vice presidents of student affairs, like positions I'd never heard of and and people that were doing really cool work. And I was like, wait, you guys are getting paid to do this? Like, what, what job is this? Like, what is this? Um, and that was the first time I heard about higher education. Like you can work in higher ed, you can focus on student affairs, you can get a master's degree in leadership if you want. And it just like, it blew my mind. And I was like, that that's what I want to do. So I was still doing the communication thing. And, and my concentration is PR. And so it was still kind of related. Um, because, you know, I'm, you know, publicizing the university to the public. My senior year at Sac State, um, I became an admissions and outreach counselor. So now I'm in the high schools. I'm at other community colleges, really talking to students about the school that I go to in the city that I'm from. I thought it was like the easiest job ever. I was like, <laughs> I can't believe they're paying people to do this. Um, but I loved it. Um, and it gave me a, a, a different insight into how students prepare to enter uh, higher education, what they think about it, how intimidating it can be, how complex it could be. Um, and I just was like, OK, so now I got the admissions. I got the financial aid. I got the orientation. Like, you know, I'm a walking, talking package right now. I could really help somebody change their life. And And that's really what I believe about higher ed is like it's it's this, it's the life-changing business. Like you tell someone they can get into college or they're going to graduate from college or they have enough money for college. Like those are life-changing pieces of information. And so I just felt very fortunate to to step into this work, um, you know, t- and, and having that mindset and that mentorship um, because during that time, the director of advising at Sac State, shout out to Beth Merritt Miller. I love you. I hope you're listening. Um you know, really started mentoring me into this work of higher ed and what it means. And as I was about to graduate um, with undergrad, she said, you need to go to grad school. (laughs) And again, this is the kid who was like, I don't really want to go to school. I just need this certificate. And now to be, you know, crossing that stage with my bachelor's degree and thinking about graduate school, um, again, which is something I, I could never have imagined for myself. But, I, you know, like good mentees do, I took that advice and jumped into a graduate program at Sac State in higher education leadership um, and solidified the the pieces in my toolbox that I needed, I think, to step into an administrative role. I had never considered, you know, being a leader in higher ed, but the more I started thinking about it, it was like, I have all of this information, but what about the students who don't meet with me? Like there are other people doing this work who need this information. Um, who don't have it, you know. So I was like, okay, leadership is where I need to where I need to be. So the degree made a lot of sense. In 2012, I got my master's in higher ed uh, leadership from Sac State. And probably the next year after that at Sac State, we started talking about developing a one stop. Um, Stepped into a leadership role with you know getting that one stop up and off the ground, um, and that's when uh, a position opened up in academic advising at Sac State. Um, It was an associate director position. Um, I didn't think that I was qualified for it. But again, I was like, I have all this knowledge that I want to share and, you know, give to other folks. Like, this is the time I got the degree. Like, this is the time. So I took a leap of faith, bet it on myself, you know, it ended up working out. I secured that position and felt like, okay, now I'm a manager and I'll have this time to learn from other managers around me. My director at that time, um, who was in that position, I was really looking forward to just learning from him. And then like five months later, he was like, Hey, so Jazzy, I got a new job and I'm out. I was like, what? Um, okay. Um, best wishes to you. Not sure what that's going to mean for me, but I was a little panicked and my AVP came in and she met with me along with uh, my director at the time. And they said, you know, we want you to step into this interim director role. We We think you have what it takes. And, I was just like, ah, you know, imposter syndrome, like to the max. I was like, I don't know, guys. I had never been a professional advisor at that point, had only done orientation and some peripheral type stuff. Um, but the work was leadership and it was important. And I knew about the impact of of having advisors who understood financial aid, who understood how students are arriving, you know, to the college. And, you know, they bet on me. I took that another leap and stepped into that director position um, which is where I stayed at Sac State for about five and a half years as the director for academic advising and just worked with some amazing leaders, amazing advisors who were student focused, student centered, um, just very creative thinkers. And um, as much as, you know, I think I was able to share knowledge with them. I learned a lot from them, you know, about myself and and just how to show up in this work, how to be an authentic leader in um, the impact that that has particularly on like students of color, employees of color, being able to just see themselves or another version of leadership that is non-traditional, I guess, if I could use that word. Um, So it was, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, another opportunity presented itself here at American River College to run their brand new first year experience program, which was very much in alignment again with everything that I had been doing at Sac State. Uh, So in August, 2019, I, I took another leap, and jumped into a a director position uh, here at AR, and within, I want to say, nine months, uh, was promoted to uh, a a dean, dean of student services. And so that's where I've been uh, since August of 2019, uh, home of the Beavers, um, and doing some really cool work with community college students and and helping them, you know, kind of find their path, stay on that path, and complete that path you know, in a, in a timely manner. So my journey to higher ed is like, it's kind of all over the place, but I think it's important to, to highlight that because it, it wasn't like I graduated from high school, then I went to college and then, you know, everything fell in alignment for me, uh, but you can do it. You know what I mean?
0: But I think your story in a sense, at any point in your journey can relate to somebody, you know, and, you know, you're talking about how it was like, Hey, you want to go on to the CSU, go on to the four-year, you got to take the stats class. You know, there's that momentary like uh maybe I don't want to take that class your mentor says hey you want to go on to grad school uh, maybe do I have to maybe mm-hmm. hey, we want you to go and, and we want you to be a director uh you know mm-hmm. like you're saying it's it's a, it's that imposter syndrome but then yeah. ultimately a little bit after you're like you know what it's a challenge let, let's do this you know let's exactly. get this happen and let's see what happens from here let you know, let's see what the future holds. Exactly. And, you know, there's so much positivity in that. And, you know, you mentioned before, and I think I saw on your website too, like, you know, and it's in your bio that you talk about these three words, a, arrive, aspire, and achieve. And these are words that you live by because you've talked about before how, you know, you were that student that, and you've worded it that, that you should never have made it statistically, mm-hmm. you know, but here you are. Yeah. Um when you pick out those three words for those three A's, the arrive, aspire and achieve, uh, why those words?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think about just like the, the, the development that happens as we move through this journey called life um, and recognizing that we have power, we have capital, no matter where you're coming from, like you have this sphere of influence. And so to recognize first that we uh, arrive, like, it, and validating how we arrive and how we show up, and making sure that we know that that's okay. Exactly who I am, how I am, what I'm bringing to the table is is what I'm bringing. You know what I mean? And to recognize that that is totally okay, and that's the best place to start. I think a lot of times for for students and even like just new professionals or professionals in general that are stepping into new realms, we we have that moment of doubt. Like, do I have what it takes? Am I ready for this? Um, Should I be here? And, you know, that first A for A3, that arrival is like, no, you should be here. You're exactly where you should be at the right time in your life to make this this next step or to to prepare for this transition. So that's the arrive. Um, The aspire piece is about the dream. Right. Like we have to have a dream. We have to cultivate that dream. Um, The work that I do with, you know, with families is about validating their students dream a lot of times I see families that are putting their dreams on the student or what they would have wanted or what they would have hoped that they could have done. Um, And unfortunately, like that, that shit passed. Right. And now we're focused on the individual student, right. What are their dreams? Not comparing them to their older siblings or your coworkers, kids, but like this is what this student, how they showed up and what they're aspiring to do. Um, I'm working with the family right now And the student is very interested in game design. Um, But the family is like, it's computer science. (laughs) So We're having this conversation about like, hey, game design is is a growing field. It's a lucrative field. There are so many opportunities within game design um, that will allow your student to be happy and to be successful. And I think for them, it's like we just want him to be independent. You know, we want him to be stable and kind of helping them recognize like, the dream that he's aspiring to can help you accomplish your goal that you have for him and his goal. And so that's honestly where a lot of the work with a three resides is like in that aspire stage of like, let's listen, you know, and as advisors, we do that naturally. And when we're listening for things that students aren't saying, we're looking at body language when they're talking about, you know, a major that they're really excited about, do their shoulders go up? You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're trained to do all of that. Um, but for, for parents specifically, um, it's a bit of a shift, right? Because your your student's now in the driver's seat. And so that uh, that aspire piece is is critical um, and it takes time. And then the achievement is like, okay, we've we identified what we want to do, now let's execute. Um, and that's where I feel like I really thrive in, in, in the work that I do with A3 is like, let's come up with a plan. And this plan is going to be individualized. It's going to be tailored specifically for you for your dream and for the goal that you have set forth for yourself. And so through that stage, we're talking about, is it college? Right. Because a lot of times it's like college, but for some students it's not college or it's not college right away. Like maybe it's um, uh, a certificate or um, vocational. And I think the work that I do at the community college now just opened up my mind to like vocational is getting like a bad rap. Like we all need plumbers. We all need mechanics. We all want those solar panels on our new houses. Like, it is lucrative. Um, it is a short time span to get there. And so just helping families and students sometimes recognize that, Hey, there's more than one way to get to Disneyland. You know what I mean? Like you can take the five, you can take the 99, you can go up and you can come across, but however you get there, let's get there. You know what I mean? And let's set a goal and then let's achieve it. And and that's a lot of what a three is about is like working with students and families through that developmental stage, to help them identify what this post high school transition look like for this student. Right. Um, yeah, that I, I live by that as well. Um, just trying to remember that it's a journey, right. You know what I mean? It's not a destination, but it's all about these decisions that you're making the growth opportunities that present themselves along the way. Absolutely.
0: And let's talk more about A3 because, you know, you're talking about you're focusing on the ninth through twelfth grade with Mm -hmm. families and the post high school transition. What made you decide to focus um, on ninth through twelfth grade?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It it started back when I was doing outreach. um, And a lot of times the students that I'd be interacting with would be seniors. um, And I talked to them about like, this exciting campus that I go to in the city that I'm from, it's, you know, it's, a, it's affordable only to find out that they didn't take this one class or um, they don't have the, the test score that they need or something has made them ineligible for admissions. Um, so there was a lot of heartbreak in that work, right? And, and yes, you redirect and you help students come up with, you know, a plan B that will still help them, you know, get to Disneyland, if you will. But, in those moments I just felt like, gosh, I wish I could have got to you sooner. You know what I mean? Or I wish I could have talked to you about, you know, advanced education or different ways that you can do middle college so that we could have, you know, avoided this situation. And then that was coupled with having very similar conversations with families about like, Hey, I've been telling my kid, you know, all they got to do is get good grades and graduate and I will help them get to the college of their dream. But I didn't know the college of their dream was going to cost me 40000 30000 I didn't know that, you know, they were going to be considered an out-of-state resident and then that was going to, you know, cause our family to incur additional costs. And so there was heartbreak on that side that I saw, right? Of like, damn, I told my kid to, to do X, Y, and Z. They did it. And now I can't hold up my end of the bargain. And as a parent myself, it's one of the most heartbreaking things that you can go through is to, to feel like you've let your kid down. You know, when they've done everything um that you've told them to do. So I thought there's an opportunity to talk with families about like, hey, here's how college works, if that's the, you know, if that's the goal, here's how you plan, here's how financial aid works, what financial aid is looking at. Um, so that, you know, we're working in tandem and the earlier we can do that, right? Not not senior year, not junior year, which particularly for communities of color, that's when they start thinking about it. It's like, all right, this is your senior year. Where do you want to go to college? And it's like, hey, senior year. We're really only looking at one semester, if that, to make these decisions. Um, and so it's, re- you know, it's really everything that happened before. And so, you know, just hearing families and students say like, oh, my freshman year doesn't count. <laughs> you know, or like uh, I didn't really need that class. I said I didn't need it. It didn't have to be college prep or, you know, whatever the story was that led them to potentially being ineligible. Um, I wanted to get ahead of that. And I thought, OK, freshman year is a good time. To start that conversation, maybe not to go all the way through the three stages, but we can at least start talking about who you are, what you're interested in, uh, what gets you excited in the morning, what world problem do you want to resolve and start some of that like major and career exploration early, help the parents kind of hear it and see it early so that as we move through those formative, you know, secondary years we're really just refining and strengthening, you know, what that student's aspirations are. And then, you know, just as well as I do, once we hit, you know, junior year, late junior, senior year, we are in execution mode. We're at campus tours at the right campuses, right? Not like my kid wants to go to 15 colleges, you know, so I need $3,000 in application fees. But we've done, you know, a lot of that work early on at a time where I think developmentally, the families and the students are ready to talk about what the next transition is going
0: to be. Yeah. But I used to hear that a lot when I worked in, in admissions and I used to either go recruit at schools or meet with students or talk to them on the phone as I'm reviewing their transcripts. And I would hear that too about like, Oh, the ninth grade doesn't count. My freshman Mm -hmm. year doesn't count. And I'm like, no, it does. Like Mm we, we, we have A through G requirements that we look at. Mm-hmm. We are looking at your ninth grade in terms of those classes. Do you have your English class? Do you have your math? Are, you know, are you meeting these admission entry requirements? And like, exactly. oh, but I was told that it didn't, and some of them had to go and make them up during summer classes or take like an extra seventh period to make yeah. up for ninth grade because they had come in with that assumption that they had heard from other people that it didn't count. And I'm like, I don't know where you're hearing this from, but someone's telling you.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You know, or even, you know, some of the work that I do now is like, hey, forget repeating it at your high school. Let's get you into the college level course Mm -hmm. at the community college, satisfy that requirement, earn you some college credit under your belt at the same time. And it's probably going to be free. You know, like those are the types of nuggets that families need early.
0: Yeah, and then and then if you end up transferring to a four year school, then hey, that class is already going to possibly counting
1: trying- for a requirement. Exactly, and and that's the that's the magic of advising, right? It's like ah, we're going to put this together with this, you know, and get you there.
0: Absolutely. So I want to kind of go back to when you were a student because you were mentioning like when you were transferring, it was like, hey, take this one extra course, take the stats class. But what was your uh, transfer experience like going from Sac State um, or uh, Sacramento City College to Sac State?
2: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
1: I I think I had that transfer shock, you know, that, that most transfer students experience. Definitely imposter syndrome. I felt... Prepared. I felt comfortable at Sac City. Um, I was doing well. I, it was just a very comfortable. It's like a like a blanket, nice warm blanket wrapped around, covered my whole body. To now, I was going to be stepping into an environment that was a little unfamiliar, um, and so I was I was nervous, you know, to, to say the least. I didn't know if I was cut out to be a university student. But I have to just, and I, I I do this every time I tell my story. I have to shout out my EOPNS counselor, Mauricio Gonzalez. Uh, he's doing some independent work right now, and he's my colleague now. But if it, if it wasn't for him to say, you can do this, you know what I mean? Like it's okay to have a healthy amount of, of fear and doubt, but don't let that paralyze you. You know what I mean? Let it propel you. And and that was something that I took with me, um, transferring into Sac State. And I think, honestly, one of the wisest things I could have done was get a campus job. Mm-hmm. I knew I needed to work and I knew I needed I knew working at the college was going to work best just for my school and, you know, my, my personal life. Um, but it also gave me community right away. You know, I had three or four people that I knew that I could you know rely on. I knew that there was a microwave, a refrigerator there. I could heat up my food. And um, it just immediately immersed me into the university culture. So then I started learning different things, hearing from different people. I'm surrounded by student affairs staff members and other professionals. And it it helped me like just settle in very, very comfortably. Um, and it was a nice transition, like all things considering, you know, figuring out new portals and deadlines and all of that, of course, was a challenge. But knowing that, you know, my EOPNS counselor, he was he's believing in me. He's counting on me to, you know, go over here and do good things. And now I'm in an environment of other like-minded individuals that want to help students, but also are focused on, you know, their own academics and their own goals uh, made that transition a lot smoother. And so when I started doing orientation and, and outreach and all of that, that was one of the first things I would tell people is like, find your community. Like, if you don't know what you're interested in, get a job on campus. that will be the first way to meet friends, to meet people. My first day at Sac State, I met people cause I was working, you know what I mean? And so, um, I had the, the transfer shock, but my transition was a lot smoother because of, you know, the support that I had and some of those decisions I made early on to just get connected right away. Oh, yeah.
0: And having that on-campus job, so beneficial, like you're talking about, I mean, especially, you know, getting to meet other student, like assistants mm-hmm. as well, and what major they're doing, what resources they know about, and then yeah. the staff that knows a lot too about the institution, and can help help you navigate and guide you in addition to your uh, EOP counselor. Um, yeah. but also, you're not having to commute. <laughs> you know, you're right there on the campus. So exactly. go to class, go to work, go to your next exactly. class. I,
1: to, I literally told people like, I went to Sac State for orientation, and I was going back to that campus every single day for 12 years. Like that was my life, and I, it was easier for me. I was like, I go to school, I stay there all day, I go to work, and then when I come home, I change hats into mommy mode and then we do that and so it was just a really nice like school life balance that I know um advisors were talking to students all the time about finding that balance and and you know finding time for yourself so I I will always 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 recommend you know getting a campus job get a get a job as an RA get free housing that's <laughs> the time. so that's another one
0: that is true. And yeah, finding those extra little benefits too. Least, yeah, especially being an RA where it's like, okay, hey, we'll cover you for your your room and board. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, I don't need to find money for that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yep. So let's talk about American River College. How would you yep. describe ARC?
1: So ARC, honestly, is like uh, a small community. We have, in good times, over 30,000 students on our campus. We're one of the top five largest community colleges in the state. Um, we are a part of a multi-college district, so there are four uh, community colleges in the Los Rios District. It's us, American River, and we also have Consumnes River, uh, Folsom Lake, and then Sacramento City College. Um, so it's kind of a full circle thing that I work here, knowing that I started at Sac City, but um, it's a it's a great it's a great place to learn. Um, our faculty, um, that's both our instructors and our counseling faculty, are some of the most dedicated and committed individuals that I've ever met in this profession. uh, The compassion that you need, the humility that you need to work at a community college um, is a unique skill. Um, We have students here who literally they just arrived in the United States and this is their first stop. So we're, we have a high English language learner population. We have a high immigrant population, um, but it's a diverse campus across the board. we recently uh, received the Hispanic Serving Institution uh, designation with over a quarter of our students identifying as Latinx. Um, so it is just a, a really perfect, uh, small like peek into the city of Sacramento. Like you get every part of Sacramento uh, right here at this college. Uh, Sacramento is the city of trees. There's a debate about whether or not we're the farm to fork capital, but those of us from Sacramento know we are the city <laughs> of trees. Um, And so it's. I'm looking outside my window right now. There's just hundreds of trees across the campus, lots of places for students to kind of lounge and hang out Um, within our division of student services, which is the equivalent of student affairs at the four-year. We've got all of the support programs that you can imagine. We have a a Beaver Cares area, which is for our food pantry, our housing insecure, our food insecure students, CalFresh runs out of there. And so- this is a place where if you don't know what you want to do, who you want to be, or even just where to start, uh, American River College is a great place to just step foot on. Um, we've got a, a rather new president. Um, I, I still consider her to be new, but she started during the pandemic um, in, in January of 21, who is just absolutely on fire, um, who's got the college reimagining and rethinking about how we serve students, what our commitment to equity and social justice is and how we're delivering on those words that we put on our website. So for somebody like me, it's it's great to just have a, a, an excellent model to, to aspire to, no pun intended, but to aspire to in this work. Um, we are always evolving. Um, we're part of, you know, Guided Pathways. We can talk more about that later, but really being intentional with our students about helping them figure out uh, what they wanna study Um, And getting on a path to to complete those courses, um, along with a success team wrapped around them to make sure that they get all the way to that finish line. And so the the work that I've done here at AR has been a lot of innovative work, a lot of new programs, standing things up and um, helping it find a place here in the in the fabric of the institution. Um, But it's it's just a, a great place to learn. It's a great place to work. Um, Our student services professionals and just our classified staff across the board um, are just high quality executors. Um, They go above and beyond. And I don't mean to say like they're working late hours after hours, like underpaid, but they put the student first. And whether they're in our operations and facilities area or the library or on a front line, you know, student services department, um, we are all kind of operating from this premise that our students come first. Um, this is the first campus that I've worked at where it's in the strategic goals, like students, and it's not just a strategic goal; it's strategic goal number one. Um, and that's just so refreshing to know that that's uh, that's the place that we operate from. That's how we make decisions. Um, that's how we recruit. Um, everything we do is you know just with students in mind and with a hyper focus on. Um, equity you know and making sure that we're closing gaps, making sure that we're decolonizing wherever possible, that we're um, questioning our policies and practices um, and, and making tough decisions where we need to. Um, and so AR is you know I, I tell I joke with my colleagues in the in the district. Uh, we're the, the first uh, of the Los Rios campuses so we're the flagship. and so I take that very seriously. I see us as, as leaders. I'm in the district and, and leaders in the system and and that's um, our president is driving by right now on a golf cart. <laughs> commencement and she's just cruising around like that's that's the type of place that we that I work at and um, I love it here. It, AR has been just a great place for me to learn and grow and develop and and I've seen that the same in my colleagues and in those that I lead as well.
0: Oh yeah. I know you're talking about your president. Um, you still consider your president new. I, I still think of anyone that started in 2020 is, is still right. new. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so much has changed. I mean, the campus has evolved so much. Um, and I started in 2019. So I was only here for eight semester mm-hmm. and then the pandemic hit. So I think I still consider myself a <laughs> new student.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's nice to know that in the strategic goals, it's, the first one is about the students, you know, and, and it's not just a, you know, a buzzword that's thrown around mm-hmm. or it's just said as a quote. It's mm-hmm. it's written, it's it's in writing, and it's there, and so it definitely gives that institution purpose. You know, that's yeah. why we're here is for the yeah. students.
1: Yeah, hold this um, account in, in a very special way.
0: Yep, hundred percent. And you're the dean of student services, so you know what does your role entail? What's your day to day like?
1: Yeah, good question. I never thought I would be a dean. <laughs> I think when I thought about deans, I was like, oh no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to be. Um, but that—that's leadership, and that's how it works, you know. Like you—you—you you, you evolve into these roles where you have this really special opportunity to lift as you climb. You know what I mean? And, and my leadership style is authentic leadership, but it's also very much servant leadership, and so I have this unique opportunity to lead uh, probably about 25 individuals from students to uh, temporary staff. Those are kind of like our part timers um, all the way to full time classified staff professionals um, in the areas that I oversee um, are outreach. Um, And so in working with that outreach area, it's really thinking about strategically right now, specifically, like how do we recruit our students back? Um, At the community colleges, we've lost so many students during the pandemic. Uh, We've lost a lot of our black and brown, our queer students, our API students. Um, And so how are we focusing our efforts strategically um, to recruit our students back? Um, So a big part of my job is is thinking about what our strategic plans are going to be, what our strategic goals are going to be. I very much still use the smart goal format and template that, you know, when I was an advisor, we did with students to drive our efforts, to keep us grounded, to keep us centered on, you know, the the, the goal in mind. So I do a lot of strategic planning. Um, I also oversee our home-based pathway communities, which are basically our completion programs uh, designed to help students um, accomplish their goals. Um, I guess it's worth saying, and, and I think people know it, but no one really wants to say it out loud, Um, there are only about 2% of students that graduate or transfer in two years. Um, And so we've got a tremendous amount of work to do to um, address that inequity, you know, and it's inequity across the board, but to address that. And so I'm looking at data, you know, on a regular basis, whether that's performance data, enrollment data, um, how our students are progressing, um, utilizing different software and platforms to help me do that. Um, and that drives a lot of the decisions that we make. You know, um, if I think about uh, like our completion programs, our home bases, I want to know how are our black and brown students in those majors performing, progressing? I want to know how our students who are um, on probation are experiencing academic difficulty. How are they rebounding? What resources are we providing to them? And are they utilizing them? Are they effective um, so it's a lot of that as well, like just goal setting, but using the data to drive a lot of those goals and a lot of the decisions that I have to make. Um, and budgets, you know, I think that's just like kind of the standard part of, you know, being in, in roles like this is being um, a good steward of the public funds that, you know, we're responsible for and trying to create um, opportunities for students to engage that really speak to them, that really connect with them. Um, So thinking creatively sometimes about maybe how we, um, in student life, how we'll partner with another area or department to, you know, bring a speaker out, to bring a DJ out to the quad. Uh, Right now I'm working with this balloon artist. Like I need that guy out here making balloon animals and stuff with students um, to remind them that college is fun. And I think that's gotten lost in the pandemic, particularly with a lot of online courses is there's this whole student life component that is so valuable but is is kind of like faded to black a little bit during the pandemic that now we're trying to climb out of and so um you know using our using our financial resources to do some of that work collaborating with other departments or our sister campuses to put programming together that speaks to students interests speaks to their identity um, speaks to their career and and goal interests and again, just kind of makes college fun again, um, is is something that I get to do in this work. I, I, I operate like with a team mentality. Um, I can only think about so many things and I only have so many experiences. So within my management team, which is one of our supervisors, my administrative assistant and now our clerk is kind of putting our heads together to make sure that, you know, our personnel is is we don't have vacancies, that we have the supplies that we need that we are taking kind of the the vision of the institution and figuring out how to uh, apply that to the work that we're doing, how to keep folks motivated um, and connected, you know, is, is, you know, another big part of things that I have to do.
0: Yeah, it seems like the work's cut out for you, though, you know, especially because coming out of the pandemic, as you were saying, a lot of that student engagement pieces, like the workshops, the, um, you know, the celebrations, all of that kind of just in a sense went to the wayside and it's like, well, we can't do it in person. So have something online and hopefully Mm -hmm. that makes up for it. And Mm -hmm. then now as you know, many of us have returned back or are in some kind of transitional modes with this, you know, we're looking at, okay, do we have money now to even do this? You know, is it going to be one of those where, well, if we fix the wheel in a sense that when we were online, did we return back to having something in person and then now having those conversations and, Mm -hmm major discussions on that you know so a a lot to do
1: yeah there's good space to like yes we want to return back but we want to return at least at ar we want to return back better you know we don't want to return back to the way we were doing things before like yes we want an in-person graduation but how do we go 2.0 you know what i mean how do we revitalize it so we give our students this renewed sense of purpose you know that they're coming back to something new as well
0: Uh, yeah for sure and you know, you were mentioning about uh, pathways, and so mm-hmm. there was an article in 2021 through the connection, and it was it was mentioned. Um, so you were mentioned the article, and that was titled "Chancellor Discusses Student Goals and Programs um, mm-hmm. to Los Rios Staff." And you had mentioned that um, you really it really should be like a home based pathways communities. You know that were not program it's not programs, but it's a culture shift. It's yeah. a commitment to making changes. So why, why is it important uh, to make that distinction? Um, and how do you implement those pathways uh, to be a culture shift?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of work uh, and it's a lot of collaboration. And I just I'm a firm believer in collaboration and just bringing folks to the table and having just representative you know voices when we're making some of those decisions. At American River, we have this history of creating programs. We create a program. It goes away. We create a program. We change the name. We create another program. And so our college just as a community, I think, was on program overload. Mm -hmm. Too many programs. There wasn't a lot of distinction between the programs. And so there was just this tension that was being built up between programs. And then you introduce home based pathway communities and people are immediately like, oh, my God, it's another. Here we go again. Another program. Um, But really what we're focused on, our goals are very simple with the home bases. We want to connect students to people, programs, and services. Um, If they're not already connected to someone or something at the college, we want home bases to be that for them. I think we all know Tinto's research. We all know about the impact of being connected to someone or something and and how that impacts success, persistence, retention, and all of that. So it was a very simple, you know, goal is like we want to make sure that students are connected to people, programs, and services. We also want to make sure that we're facilitating their timely progress, you know, to degree, you know, and, and, and doing that immediately, we're not a program, you know what I mean? Because we are talking about how we make sure that students don't fall off the beaten path, how we make sure that students stay motivated, how we celebrate their wins. Um, And advising, we focus a lot on our students that are struggling or, um, you know, having challenges as we should. But I think what happens inadvertently is we forget about those students that are just absolutely rock stars knocking it out of the park. And so home bases gives us that opportunity to do that and facilitate that. And then also, um, you know, give them a space to think about their career goals and their next steps. Um, and so with that, it, to me, it was like, well, we're not a program. We're not going to go away. This is shifting the way that we do business, every single student at this college is going to be connected to a success team um, or someone at the college who knows about them and who cares about them. That's completely different than what we've been doing since the beginning of time for all students. Now, we have definitely our um, case management programs, our categorical programs who've been doing this work for decades and, and just absolutely rocking it. But we know with those programs, there's a finite number of students that they can serve. And there's just a larger population of students who aren't able to connect in those ways that we wanted to make sure had um, had those opportunities to do that. And so part of it was like, let's not talk about programs because programs has a negative connotation, at least at our campus. It makes it seem like it's temporary and it's going to go away. And let's just talk about hey, this is how we serve students. If students don't know where to go, they can go to their home base. If you, as an employee, you don't know where to go, you can go to the home base. We're gonna be doing relevant programming, relevant workshops, giving students an opportunity to connect with counselors um, up front. Like we're, we're telling them, hey, your counselor is available. You have an assigned counselor. Um, when would you like to meet with them? That's just a shift in the way that we've done business for you know several decades. It's like, well, we'll just wait for them to come to us. And if they don't come to us, then there's something going on in their life. And, you know, that's beyond our control to now kind of stepping in this proactive space of saying, hey, Matt, you're a communication major. I'm your success coach. Come in, meet with me, talk with me. Let's make sure things are good. If they are great. If not, you've got a sounding board or an advocate who's going to help you do that. Um, And so that was really important when 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 we met with the chancellor and we delivered this message to our college at convocation is like, this isn't a program. This is how we show up. And then with our new president coming in and doubling down on that and saying home bases is, is the way that we're going to do things. Um, and so it's kind of uh, forced some, but reaffirmed for others that this is here to stay. You know, this is the way that we're going to onboard students. It's the way that we orient students. It's the way that we guide them along their path and how we celebrate them at the end. Um, and so that's why I'm, 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 still on that, you know, mission of like, hey, we're not a program, you know, um, the way we measure our success is going to look a little bit different um, because it's people work, it's it's human work, you know, and really centering students at the core of everything that we're trying to do with home bases. Uh, we launched them virtually at a very brave time, fall 2020. Um, we launched them through Canvas and we didn't have to. You know, but that team came together and we made a, a courageous decision, like, let's continue to push forward. Um, if we don't, we who knows where we would be? Um, but we did, you know, and we launched them through Canvas. And just this past February, I don't think I'll ever forget it, uh, we finally opened up the doors to our physical spaces and were able to welcome students in and kind of realize this, you know, this vision, this dream that we had, uh, you know, many years ago before I even arrived at ARC.
0: But it's exactly what you just said, that you didn't have to.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But,
0: you know, And it kind of goes along with the idea that the word programs a lot of times has that negative connotation because how many institutions have looked at numbers and said, oh, this number doesn't look good. We need to create a program. We need yeah. to be reactive to it. And how many of it is just for show? Because yeah. a year later, that program has gone because the person who, who they brought in is now left and went to some other school or some other career. And yep. then it just dissolves. And yep. then like, oh, well, that's not a problem now because we have this other problem that we need to
1: fix. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, fatigue. it's just absolute fatigue. And, you know, if you're not in the trenches of this work, let's just say you're an instructor, like trying to keep up with all the acronyms, the different programs, the program requirements, who's in charge. You know, it can, it can be very overwhelming. But, you know, here at AR, it's a culture shift. It's the way that we're going to take care of our students. It's the way that we're going to improve on those performance metrics that we know we need to improve on. It's how we're how we're centering equity in our work, how we're making sure that our students see themselves at this institution, see themselves in their major, uh, see themselves, you know, in these physical home bases um, is important to their development and how they transition and uh, move through their educational journey as well.
0: Yeah, it's so good that you're looking at that and how intentional a lot of it is. Because again, kind of going back to the term program and so many programs out there that overlap with one another, and you're just mm-hmm. doing the same work.
1: Yeah, and it's it's like demoralizing and people get dejected by it. They're just like, why am I doing this if the program right next door is also doing it? Then it creates confusion. But mm-hmm. yeah, we just say this is this is how we sh- this is what you can expect from us at ARC. This is the excellence that we're delivering.
2: Um. stay with us we'll be right back
1: you love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast maybe you want to build a brand grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby whatever your reason for making a podcast buzzsprout is the place to start since 2009 buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today.
0: Such an inspirational interview, Jazzy. You know, so many, so much, so many different tidbits that I think a lot of listeners are going to pick up and just be inspired by by your story and then everything that you're doing at ARC. So if any listeners have any questions, they want to connect, um, how can they reach out to you? What's the best way?
1: Man, there's a lot of ways to get a hold of me. I mean, you can email my work email for sure. Um, and I can say it here, Matt, you can yep. put it wherever it needs to be, but Murphy J um at arc.losrios.edu. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn, Jazzy Muganzo Murphy, um, or on Twitter um, at Jazzy underscore Murphy. And I'd love to connect. Um, I'd love to pick your brain, let you pick my brain and just talk about this amazing work that we're very fortunate to do. I I really consider it to be a gift. Um, Not many people can say that they love their job, but um, I do love my job. I love this work. Um, I'm passionate about it and um, I believe in it just wholeheartedly.
0: And if you ever get to meet Jazzy at a conference in person, Jazzy will definitely put a smile on your face. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that positive energy and not like the toxic positivity like this is right. like true, <laughs> real positivity that will make you feel good and, you know, make you love what you do being an academic advisor in higher ed. So Jazzy, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Man, thank you, Matt, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Jazzy, it was so great chatting with you today. Thank you for sharing about A3 and helping students to arrive, aspire, and achieve, as well as sharing your pathway through school and higher ed. Truly inspirational. And let's jump to our next interview with returning guest, Dr. George Steele, guest hosted by Jamie Ingle. And let's welcome back to the podcast, um, podcast guest, podcast interviewer that's jamie engel jamie how are you
2: hi matt doing good how are you doing today Ah,
0: i'm doing fine so last time you were on we were both interviewing chris kirchhoff and that was a fun interview but i'm gonna turn it over to you because you're going solo with this one so i'm gonna let you introduce our returning guest and it has been a while so jamie go for it
2: yes thank you matt for um entrusting me briefly with the keys to the kingdom if if i may uh, so today i have the honor and privilege to interview my friend george Steele. Uh, george previously served as the executive director of the ohio learning network and dire- and directed the advising program at the ohio state university for undecided and major changing undergraduate students in his professional work George has written publications addressing academic and career advising theory, use of technology in advising, and assessment of the use of technology. George has been a member of NACADA for over 25 years and has held numerous leadership positions in that organization and has been recognized by it for his work and contributions. George holds a doctorate degree in education from Ohio State University. Uh, George was last on this podcast, uh, I believe, episode 24 back in December 2020. George, how have you been since all the way back in, <laughs> in been, the
3: year 2014? Been doing well, like, like everyone else, um, using a lot of technology because that's the way we've been interacting with one another with uh, COVID. So, um, you know, I think that I've seen more friends through Zoom than I've seen face-to-face over the previous you know, two years prior to COVID. So it's, on one hand, there's an advantage uh, to it in that I think the technology that we're using is uh, – helping us keep in touch. But as having seen you last week at the Region 5 conference, um, it doesn't really replace that face-to-face and uh, that type of interaction, does it?
2: No, not. There's just something missing there. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know exactly what it is. (laughs) In Zoom land, yeah, we get to stay connected so much more consistently, but oh my gosh. Yeah, mm-hmm. seeing each other in person, seeing everybody in person. We just fell right back into it, didn't we? <laughs> yes, we did.
3: <laughs> didn't miss a beat.
2: <laughs> no, we did not. No, we did not. And, you know, you've always been a, a huge proponent of technology in advising. Um, you know, you, you had sent me some articles about the future of advising prior to um, prior to today. Uh, those were ranging from the years 1988 to about 2016 from mm-hmm. authors like Habley. Is it Habley? Habley? Habley. Hadley, (laughs) Lowenstein, yourself, of course, Greitz, Gordon, Mm. Nutt, McGill. Uh, Could you maybe walk us through the progression of your own theories about the future of academic advising as as maybe influenced by that literature?
3: Um, Thank you, Jamie. Uh, You know, looking back at it, I, I think that there was always a dynamic that was involved here. And that some of the articles that looked at the future of academic advising took more of a focus of what will the future be within the context of higher ed? And so it looked at things such as uh, how can we end up like, I think Wes Habley went ahead and, and asked a, a number of questions uh more about in line of um, how do we work at the institutional level? How do we end up by, defining academic advising, and how do we end up by having a process where we can be more effective within the context of higher ed. And, and that was, I think, in, what, 1988. So one would expect that. You know, it was new. Uh, the organization was new. How do we move forward within the context of higher ed? And there were a number of other ones that are a little bit like that, too. I think that the one article um, by Craig McGill and Charlie Nutt were looking at those type of factors that were impacting higher ed that could have impact then uh, academic advising. They were looking at uh, different types of legislation, for example, um, the, the notion of uh, graduation requirements within a certain period of time. And then there were uh, other things they were looking at the idea of how higher ed might be impacted by issues such as student debt. Uh, but, you know, again, it was sort of looking at the context of what was going on within higher ed and how academic advising would have to react to these type of forces. Um, one of the perspectives I took, and, uh, actually, uh, it's an article, article I wrote back, I think, in 2006, or it got published in 2006. And for years, I thought, you know, okay, this is fine. Let's just, you know, put it on the bookshelf, never look at it again. No need to. <laughs> Um, but uh, what it is is that I tried to look at factors that were external to higher ed that were impacting it through more of a technology perspective and how that would impact um, academic advising. And what really got me uh, a chance to go back To look at it again, and and this is um, part of the conversation we had Great Lakes uh, conference, was I had just reread or read again a second time uh, within a very short period of time the book The Great Upheaval by Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt, and what they were looking at was again um, why is higher ed why does it have to change Uh, and it's going to change. And so, what they ended up by doing is doing a great analysis of those type of things that are impacting it. Uh, uh, besides, even you know, technology, the notion of demographics, economic types of issues, and so on. And what direction is it going to head? And they did a wonderful analysis on it. And in some ways, there are some parallels between what. They were writing about, and what I was trying to write about back in 2006. Now, m- my article is again. I think that if you have trouble falling asleep at night, just put it on the <laughs> book set, and you know you'll by by the second page you'll be, in, you know, very much asleep. But what I did try to do also with that is, I again, any article you've written, and you take a look at you know, 10 years, 20 years later, um, you say, boy, I could have, I wish I could rewrite all of that. But there it is. It is what it is, right? Um, but I do think that there were some things that were, were common between the two articles. And um, we can get into that if you wish a little bit later on. But um, I, I do think that what I was trying to show in my article was that there were multiple paths that might evolve for the future of how or how we define academic advising. I laid out five. I think that the same thing What Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt are trying to do. And when you read the book, is that they are not predicting just one way forward for higher ed. What they're trying to do is to show how different institutions will adjust and adapt to this new knowledge based economy and what they must do. They aren't, they're saying that not, you know, not all institutions will be threatened. Some will make it through quite, you know, they'll adjust and adapt to as much as needed. Basically to keep them their same configuration. Other institutions will not make it. They will have to change. They'll close. And there will be a whole series of outside pressures that might actually uh, come into that space, what we now call higher ed, and offer alternatives to higher ed as we now know it from the private sector that, that students will seek as consumers because it might be more aligned with their personal career goals and personal uh, goals in, in general, but also in terms of expense and time and everything else put the pressure on higher ed. So, I mean, I, I think that there are some comparison. So I do think that what I was trying to do was somewhat similar to what they were trying to do, but in a different focus in terms of mine was on advising and theirs was on higher ed in general.
2: Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And so, so that does bring me back to the you had planted those seeds um, in our conversation last week, I believe at dinner at the Mm -hmm. uh, conference about, um, I mean, essentially, you know, the privatization of of education and services like academic advising, maybe some sort of on-demand asynchronous Mm -hmm. advising, um, which of course now now it's, you know, how close are we getting to maybe some flipped advising type of things? But um, Mm -hmm. before we got to that, I wanted to to talk about that concern I had mentioned to you, um, I brought this discussion to my my brothers, one of whom right. is a current college student and the other one who is um, an application developer at a healthcare company. So he's in the tech industry and both were immediately like, oh man, Companies like Google, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, um, start start being able to offer certifications and stuff. That's dangerous that, you know, they, they might, you know, sort of start orienting things to better fit their needs. Right. right. Can you speak a little bit to um, <laughs> the the risks and benefits of, of that?
3: Well, from a student perspective, it might be very advantageous. Um, I, I mean, again, I think it goes back to a little bit about what, um, you know, Levine and Van Pelt were talking about in their book, in that you know they they had a, a graph in there and they compared and contrasted traditional universities with digital natives, and so the traditional university has a fixed time semesters, office hours, so much digital natives. Um, this is uh, you know the. Generation Z coming up, um, they like variable time 24-7. Um, traditional universities are tr- uh, location-bound. Digital natives, uh, anytime, anyplace. Uh, uh, and you can go through a list of type of things that you can look at and compare and contrast what they did in their book between sort of where the consumers are headed right now in terms of what they want out of higher ed and what higher ed is providing. And one of the things that we had also talked about in there is that one of the the, the problems is, is that a lot of the jobs that are out there um, because there are technology within the knowledge economy require constant lifelong learning mm-hmm. and institutions um, are in a position where uh can they adjust and adapt in a timely way? And the answer is probably not. And so by putting out these micro-credentials, uh, badges, uh, uh, specific certification, you could look at it from another perspective, even. Um, and, and that perspective is is that they are at least engaging students uh, to be trained uh, to meet their specific needs. Uh, and anyone who's been familiar with a lot of the uh, issues with workforce development, think of how many times... Businesses end up by saying, "Oh, we want to hire your undergrads or your graduates, uh, but they're really not prepared to enter the workforce the way we do it." And then there's this conflict between: Do we use the, in, let's say, the public sector, community colleges, and, and and four-year institutions to specifically train employer employers or uh, in, employers' desires to have employees who have specific skills, or are we doing more of the general type of skills? Um, And who should have that responsibility? And it seems that at this point, uh, what is occurring is that many industries are saying, well, we're going to do the training now, but we're going to set it up in such a way that if you want to get into our shop, you're going to have to pay for some of your training up front. And so there's that switch that is going on in some areas, particularly in the IT area, but one can see it possibly moving forward in others.
2: Absolutely. Well, I kind of want to adjust the uh, focus maybe to, um, you know, we've been talking about how the consumers, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. are going to essentially to to sort of use some of the words from that interview you sent me that one of the authors did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, consumers want education that is cheap, fast, easily accessible, unbundled. Um, They're going to ask education to behave in the same way as Netflix, Amazon, etc. Now, I'd like to flip things over to academic advising, you know, Mm -hmm. to the advisor standpoint. Um, I want to go back to your your interview in episode 24, Mm -hmm. um, where you said something about the current model of advising not being sustainable. um, And that's due to the very nature of advisors' dedication. We overwork ourselves. Right. Um, so, so, so certainly looking forward, yeah, maybe, maybe advising is going to look a lot different from what it is now. Um, but I want to go to, uh, your sort of one of your most well-known areas of expertise these days, Mm. flipped advising, Mm. right? (laughs) Okay. Is that sort of an answer, do you think, to, um, this currently unsustainable advising model? Because I know myself. I'm tired of having the same conversations with my students. Right, <laughs> you know, right. that sort of thing. Um, I'd love to to hear you expand on that.
3: Uh, well, thank you, Jamie. I, I I do. I think that flipped advising, in many ways, is addressing some of the concerns um, that you know. Again, what we're looking at is you know Levine and Van Pelt are saying about what needs to occur within higher ed. Um, you know, again, they looked at the traditional university as um, provider-driven. In fact, you know, the university sets the parameters and, you know, in terms of what uh, it, what one needs in order to get an education. Uh, the, the learning is more passive. It tends to be abstract. Use of analog media. The focus is on teaching, not learning. And that that's due to a lot of different reasons because of that. But, you know, again, it's time bound. Um, It's based upon the industrial model. Um, You do a division of labor. Um, And in the book, you know, of course, uh, Levine and Van Pelt do an excellent job of, I think, providing a background of the traditional history of higher education up to now and how in different epochs it was constructed upon the model of the agrarian society and then change to the industrial model. And now it has is having to make the, the change over to the, um, new knowledge economy. Um, but the idea was that I think with flipped advising is that it requires active learning. Um, it, 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 uses digital media, um, there's no reason why it can't be more collaborative. I mean, we don't have to advise students one-on-one. There are areas where we can adjust and use the learning management systems and the e-portfolios with group advising. In fact, there's no reason why we, we shouldn't be, be going down that path. Um, the idea also is that it requires specific outcomes. One of the things that uh, certainly Levine and Van Pelt talk about is that as we move from uh, a, a content approach based upon um, uh, the idea of what teaching subject particular areas, we're moving one more toward a competency based. And when we look at flipped advising, one of the things that drives flipped advising is the first thing you do if you use a backward by design model or your learning outcomes. And then the second one is how are you going to evaluate your students? Um, so the idea is that you have specific competencies identified that you want the students to achieve. And then you uh, approach it in terms of your, your model. So in that way, because it's a digital platform, um, either the learning management systems or the eportfolio, portfolio but predominantly, um, uh, those two, you're put into a position where you're moving forward in that way. And the other thing is, is that, you know, they're, they're talking about the, the information of the future and the knowledge economy is more of a gathering of, of information. How do you put information together? And so when we begin to break down, uh, advising, let's say in terms of, of modules, you know, again, using Virginia Gordon's model of self-assessment as a module, co- uh, academic and career, uh, components as separate ones, but we will unite and then decision making. And so we end up by setting the the process up in such a way that there's a scaffolding across this process of helping students identify who they are, what their strengths are, what their goals are under self-assessment. We end up by looking at what are the educational options and opportunities out there, and then we end up by looking at the relationship to careers and why and helping them put it together in a step-by-step type of way. Um, or even if you want a little bit more of a hunt and gather and pull the information together, but we have at least information and resources in there that we believe are accurate and can be very beneficial to the student and and try to simplify it so that they can make greater meaning and sense of it so that they can turn it into their creatively into their plans. So, yes, I, I think that, you know, flipped advising, um, is very much a part of it. Now, I'll also add something else, is, is that one of the recommendations, of course, like I think Levine and Van Pelt say, is, um, is that we're going to be moving away in, in the university I think, or higher ed of the future, away from the credentialing based upon degrees. And what we're going to begin to look at is the entire notion of lifelong learning, keeping track of it. And within that that context, um, it's going to be what credentials do you have based upon competencies that you have that will show that you are available for those type of new type of positions that are always going to be evolving and developing over time in the future. Um, it's not the old-fashioned. You go to college and you prepare for a career that you'll do uh, you know forever. Um, it, the idea is that change is occurring. Um, And again, I mean, I I think that this goes back to some of their original points is that what they were trying to do is strike this middle ground, which I I thoroughly enjoy with what they were trying to do. Uh, And they start out by saying that some people in higher ed are are saying that you know it's not going to change. Um, In fact, how many times have you heard right now, even with some of the comments about COVID, you've heard institutions saying, can't wait to get back into the classroom. It never happened. You know, we're just moving forward. Everything we learned from using Zoom and using asynchronous advising, blah, 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 we're going back to face to face. And, and, and you've got that crowd over here pretending it never happened. And then, uh, then you have the other ones over here and saying, well, it's all going to be blown up. It's all going to change. Um, and so, I mean, he compares, um, that I think intellectually to, uh, I think some of the, the arguments that he put in there, uh, was, uh, the, the differences between, uh, Christensen, uh, the, the author from, uh, Harvard, who is well known for creative dis- disruptions. I mean, he was basing a lot of his work on the work of Sh- uh, Schumpter, the economist about creative destruction in that one of the things that drives capitalism is the fact that it's always changing and that it will adopt new technologies that causes change, which ends up by um, really destroying what had been built before. Um, And that's what I like really about uh, another thing about the Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt book is that what they show is that um, how this occurs in different industries, the music, the newspaper, and, and, uh, the other one was which one Uh music, film and newspapers, pardon me, uh, industry and how that changed over time. And in the digital age, um, you get subscriptions now to these. They <laughs> talked about the problems basically these institutions uh, or these these areas of the economy made at uh, basically they did not address. They tried to thwart, and then they were just overwhelmed. Um, but they do end up by saying, again, I I, I think that the, the the advantage of Levine's and Van Pelt's argument is that um, it's not going to be totally destroyed. Um, there are going to still be pockets of higher ed, as we know it, in the future. Um, there are still going to be parents and a, others who will want to attend a four-year institution or a two-year institution, go away from home, live in a residential college. But those will be a smaller part of the higher ed market. And so um, that, I think, is one of the interesting perspectives that they do have. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's a great point. Um, in, that, in that interview you had sent me, um, there was, it seems, a pretty stark contrast between, yeah, those schools that are really relying on their long heritage and distinction that could be problematic. That might right. not. That might not. There, yes, there is room for some of those. But um, right. talking about, you know, the the cost and everything. Oh, it's expensive. Oh, it's a pretty campus. Is that really worth sending your kid to? So, right. Some people still argue that value, right? And I, right. I actually worked at a um, the first college I worked at, McMurray College in Jacksonville, Illinois. Uh, opened its doors in 1846. Closed them in 2020. They. There was no chance that they were ready to adapt to to the needs of <laughs> right. of, of the pandemic learning, um, and, and so while many are saying, you know, we can't wait to get back to 2019, as the uh, one of the authors said, 2019 is never going to happen again.
3: Right? Mm-hmm. Right.
2: He said the uh, the pandemic was an accelerator, not a departure.
3: Yes, very much so. I mean, it, it's it's at the point now where yeah, it's an accelerator, and, and again, they go into it, and you know, I, I, what I like about it is that. Um they they talk about the the, the the private sectors like Coursera, uh uh Straight Line and a number of these other vendors that are coming into the market and offering opportunities. Some of them are just repackaging higher ed existing higher ed content, but they're putting it out there and selling it on the market as one-offs, um, as, as one possibility. You know, the vendors uh that are out there, um, not only selling, you know, uh um Services with maybe, uh, you know, you you look at some of the uh, tutoring services that are out there. Uh, Some of the tutoring services vendors uh, will have the platform, but also have the tutor assigned to it. And then there are other vendors that actually only sell the platform where you can, you know, populate uh, the tutors with your own uh, employees, if you wish. And so it's digital. Um, It's 24-7 typically. Um, so the student who is, uh, you know, w- trying to turn in a paper the next morning because they worked the late shift uh, can maybe get a tutor at two o'clock in the morning. You know, that's possible because, again, some of these platforms are looking at the idea that there's multiple time zones. We're not just, you know, the uh, East Coast, West Coast uh, Mountain, you know, Central Pacific and Hawaii. You know, they're looking at it more globally. So, yeah, um Particularly with distance learning, you you find that. So, I mean, there's a a lot of things that are are pushing into it at that point. Yes. And and even, you know, in terms of what we will be doing in terms of potentially advising. um, I mean, when I look back at, um, you know, the article I wrote, um, I thought that um, when I I took a look at it, uh, I thought I came up with about five different, you know, perspectives on that. And if I have to refresh myself a little bit on all of those. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, the the idea was basically that um, the idea of, of first looking at scenarios. And so what I, I looked at, and again, Arthur Levine and, and uh, Scott Van Pelt did the same thing. First, they looked at the development of technology. So one of the things I, I got into is looking at, you know, the development of technology, advancing. Um, I looked at the DI uh, uh, KW model where it's basically, you know, data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. And how that very model, which is very much like Bloom's taxonomy, because, of course, we make computers in our own image uh, in terms of cognition. But at the very bottom, it, it's very basic informational. Then you move up to, you know, if you're looking at it in terms of a... Uh, Let's say a student information system. You know, there's bits of information out there. You can combine them together in a student information system to define it. A course, you know, credit hours. Uh, you could look at title of the course. You can look at the description of the course, put it together. Uh, you can end it by putting it together in terms of a uh, degree program. And then you can move up to the knowledge level where you're looking at a degree audit where you can begin to compare different courses a student has taken within a degree program to by putting it personal with what the institution has. And the wisdom area basically is almost like artificial intelligence where it can map out for you what you need to do in the future. Um and so those are things that were going to impact advising. Um I and that's very much similar to what they're talking about. So what they were saying in their thing looking at the labor market, and what I was taking a look at too was that if you looked at um and Murnau and Levine is the one I used, but they came up with uh five basic skills in the new knowledge economy and uh, that uh, some of these were not going to be um, moving forward in the future. Uh, but they talked about um, non uh, random type of tasks that they would be there. They still, the computing technology hadn't been developed enough to, to, to develop that. Uh, And I think an example of that would be maybe driving a truck or, or, or a car, you know, how long has it been since we've been hearing that, uh, trucks will be driving across the country delivering goods without a driver in them. And they were predicting them back in, you know, 1998 is when, you know, it, it, it's, it's always there on the verge right. and, you know, they're, they're moving forward on it. But um, the, the other thing is is that really with some of this is that uh, they, they talked about routine cognitive tasks and, and routine cognitive tasks were those things you do over and over again. Talk about sitting in your office um, as an advisor, you know, when I was there, how many times did I end up by going through on a bingo sheet, checking off courses that a student had taken and how many courses they were going to have to take in the future? Routine, you know, technology can do that. Uh, they talked about routine cognitive tasks, saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, while the interaction, we can only do away with that. So the, the two highest skills they, they, they addressed were the idea of, um, complex tasks that, um, require Multiple perspectives in order to understand with interacting with people and complex emotional type of of communication, emotional and communication tasks. And what do advisors do? And for me, the two top ones, you know, advisors are in a position, if we can get away from some of the structures that we have in higher ed to a position where, and this is where I think our professional route depends upon, relying on our uh, unique abilities uh, as educators. To use complex communication and complex analytic skills and knowledge to help students.
2: And now, do you think that will be enough going forward? If huh. if there, how, how might advisor training need to be adjusted? You know, right. in, in light of these technologies and this on-demand, um, would we, you know, have to have a little more knowledge about instructional design, more tech right. training?
3: Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes. Well, I I think that the breakdown will occur. Again, I I predicted uh, five. Uh, One was a diffused one where technology, we're just going to be still doing some of the stuff we do currently. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of institutions view uh, at least full time advisors or professional advisors as a labor force that you plug in whenever you think you need some help. Mm-hmm. Um if it's recruiting you do them for recruiting if it's for orientation you put them in orientation uh whatever you know they're, they're you just plug them in and and some institutions will want to view them as a good labor force that they will just be flexible enough to to, to do those type of things mm-hmm. uh, the other one was uh I think I, I talked about was um more of a uh cross training approach where it's almost like a one-stop shop where you begin to compare that you you try to integrate the institutional silos of financial aid of uh, maybe career and academic advising. And you just give a basic upfront approach to get somebody in moving on. You know, it's sort of that cross training approach so that uh, what's not integrated at the institution can be integrated through an individual, but because of the level of skill and depth that you need, to be really proficient in all those areas. You just keep it really at a basic type of level to do that. The other is a customer service. And to me, a, a lot of what we do is more customer service because the institutions have created these type of organizational structures to run students through. And again, it goes back to, I think, what Levine and Van Pelt were talking about in terms of uh, higher ed was built on an industrial model. Um, you... Uh, and and in that there's time frames involved uh fixed times uh it's location bound um and you end up by trying to uh, help students with uh how their courses and credits will count towards something called a degree and and so at this point is if you and and if you look at some of the systems that we have Um, Some of the systems that we've been adopting are to help identify when students are not progressing EABs. You know, that would be an example. um, They're on a conveyor belt. What a great way to look at an industrial model. Um, When when they aren't doing the right thing, boom, there's a warning sign. And then, you know, you run down and you make sure that you do an intervention. And that's why we talk a lot about interventions. How should we intervene? And then we make sure we can get them back on the conveyor belt again. Yep. I mean, you can almost see, you know, Charlie Chaplin's in modern times being in the same role as, you know, academic advising, get them. And, and, and to some extent, that's a little bit like what we're doing with a consumer approach. And and I back that up by merely saying that, you know, there was an article by Forsnetsch, McCormick, Nalos, and Reber in 2017. And they were looking at the frequency of advisor contact with students during the first year and what they came to a conclusion of after looking at, uh, I think about 40 or 60,000 students um, that most advisors only see their students one to three times during the first year. So if you only see your student one to three times during the first year, I'm sorry. Um, you know, it's, you, you aren't going to be able to develop that in-depth type of personal approach where you are really asking them questions about what are their goals, what are their strengths, what are their talents? You're forced into a position of being much more of a customer service rep than the other. And then the other areas I talked about being a full-time professional. And I, I think that, you know, talk about a career ladder and, and you talk about those higher level skills that we just mentioned in terms of, you know, complex communication skills and emotional skills and the ability to, um, complex informational and knowledge skills being applied to help students because you're an educator, um, is that that somehow is going to get recognized within some institutions. Um, but it might be a thing where there might be only a few specialists and you end up by, um, having a mixture too. And, and take a look, for example, if you look in parallel, what has occurred in some of the health-related professions. And frankly, one reason why I fell in love with Arthur Levine is that he gave me a great insight back in the 90s. He wrote that if you want to find out what's going on in higher ed, look at healthcare because we're 10 years behind. (laughs) And um, I have a good friend who was a president of a hospital, and, and so we always were comparing notes. But take a look at, let's say, physical therapy or occupational therapy. They used to be undergraduate degrees, right? Now they're doctorates. And they're now part of the healthcare team. Okay. What did they end up by doing? They created an associate degree for physical therapist assistants to help. So what are we doing right now in higher ed? To some extent, we're doing coaches or peer advisors, mm-hmm. and we are supplementing it in the same type of fashion. Mm-hmm. Where, but now the question is: Is that are we giving these academic advising professionals the same level of? Respect and responsibility that you find maybe in the healthcare area, um, and you know that's a question to be decided later. But then the last area I talked about in the article was the entire idea of advisors being able to work external to an institution. Now again, if we're looking at some of the things I think Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt are talking about, going back to flipped advising, if we get to the point here where we end up by having many students taking more of the certificates and things external from way higher it is set up now. They're going to need help putting these things together. Mm -hmm. Maybe getting advice, how to move on, making career type of choices. So who's going to fill that space? And what I'm suggesting is that, you know, there's already ways of doing that. And it might be in the case where academic advisors could be independent operators, or be working for um, you know enterprises that basically address helping people with career. I, I can see this occurring if, if you're talking about lifelong learning, and I'm running a uh, e-portfolio platform. Why aren't you hiring people to support that and help uh, the potential student or the customer begin to organize and develop their career goals and look at all the multiple to, multitudes of options that are available to them? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that fits right back into what Levine and Van Pelt are talking about.
2: Right, right. And that's I'm glad you said that because that's that's what I'm thinking. I can, based on our conversation, I can picture mm-hmm. um, advisors potentially creating their own content and selling it, right? Mm-hmm. Creating, uh, you know, putting up a bunch of resources on an LMS or something, right. for, you know, for, for a cost, providing access to that. Um, so it's not just the idea of on-demand advising, meeting one-on-one at different hours with a right. pri- with an advisor that's self-employed or something It's also maybe that asynchronous, that flipped advising external to the institution. I could, because I kind of know how to navigate college websites, maybe I could go look at the Ohio State University's something or another major and (laughs) rip up, you know, what I think would be a good guide for students and and make money off of that.
3: (laughs) Well, in many ways, what we were doing at the Ohio Learning Network when we set it up originally, that was sort of the idea behind it because what we ended up by doing was, um, for the entire state, we had a catalog of all the courses that were offered at a distance and all, all the academic programs, any type of program that was available, whether it was a degree, associate social art degree, but baccalaureate, graduate degree or certificate. Um, but one of the things that was envisioned, but frankly, it was too early. I mean, this, we were doing this in 2001, 2002 was because Ohio, like some other institution uh, states had a, um, across the board matrix of of course equivalencies, so uh, freshman comp across the board would count in any public institution. general chemistry would count across the board, so the idea would be is that why couldn't you go in and find a course that uh, if you were working that you could take that could be transferred back easily into another public institution if you had to uh, work during the day um, or for a lower price now. Again, you, you know, as we all know, is that there's always that danger sometimes with transfer, is that um, there might be an agreement that there's a equivalency, but the way they're taught is not necessarily that our equivalency. So there's, you know, dangers on that type of thing. But that was the idea of helping people shop. But I think the other point that you're raising is very good too. And again, I, I think for advisors, this is important with Arthur Levine and Scott Van Pelt's book, The Great Upheaval. They talk about we have to start recognizing in in higher ed as we go toward the future um, the importance of people other than faculty. I'm not using this as a criticism um, because in the old model they deserved the you know the the respect, the power, and the influence that they had. What they're saying going forward is that you're looking at people who are instructional designers because it's going to be a digital world. People who are in IT, and I think that. One of the things that you know, I, I know when I'm doing the workshops and other type of things. One of the things I try to talk to people all about flipped advising is that I hope that what you're doing is getting in touch with your teaching and learning centers to start being the advocate for content that's related to advising as you develop these type of processes. Because, you know, the other thing is is that looking at those opportunities that are going to be emerging within possibly your own organization or institution that are going to need help. And if we can even get advisors to be pushing forward in that direction, I think it would be very beneficial because they, they, they are really doing something of a hybrid type of type of job at that point.
2: Oh, absolutely. Right. That's no, that's a great point. Um, and, and, you know, I did previously attend your flipped advising workshop. Yes, uh, you
3: did. Yes.
2: Yes. And I'm ashamed to say I have not yet been able to, Flip my model, no. <laughs> but you know, um, I, I blame I blame it on becoming Region Five Chair sooner than I do. Well, and you know, I'm you not are
3: totally excused.
2: <laughs> thank you, thank you. So I'll get to it. I'll get to. I'm not a Matt Markin who can be Region Chair and chair multiple conferences and do an advising podcast and do it all well. I can only do a few things pretty well. So uh, that's I... not true. <laughs> Thanks, George. Appreciate the vote of confidence. But it's something that um, if if you talk to other advisors here mm-hmm. at DePaul, um, that I, I bring up frequently, and I'm like, and I'm always wondering, where do we start? Where do we start right. with it? Do we start, do we focus on um, orientation? Because I'm very interested in flipping orientation as mm-hmm. this, um, but you mentioned using existing resources, and that is something I've started doing lately. I noticed we have this thing called the Learning Center, and they've got all these helpful videos and documents exactly. for how to enroll, things that I type full, unique, individualized emails to my students about, that are already in a video right. on the website. Right. So, so I've had, now I've taken to, um, and I've also noticed that a lot of entities, especially on a larger campus, there's a lot of different offices that offer similar overlap right. resources. I'm trying to compile that all in one place in what I call a resource grid, uh, yes. just for my own sanity, if nothing else, to remember, okay, right. who and where might, might we plug these in? But yeah, to, to folks like myself who are wondering where to even just, get started on an approach to their flipped advising.
3: Well, I think you're doing the perfect thing. I mean, what you're doing is really your first step. Uh, you have to take an inventory of the content that is out there and then use your, your, your skill as an educator to say, okay, how do I begin to break this down? Um, in terms of let's say learning goals. Um, and you know, what is self assessment? Well, knowledge about self. So, you know, um, do you want to look at your interests? Is there a way to help students identify their 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 skills or their abilities? Um, is there a way to help them refine their goals um, and that can't be independent of looking at maybe career information or educational information um, but when you're going through it, I mean particularly I think your point is, is 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 very insightful is that a lot of the process oriented things we do in higher ed other offices are doing registrar's office has youtube videos uh the financial aid office and of how to interpret the FAS, all that type of stuff you don't have to reinvent the wheel your your goal is to possibly look at it from a mixed media approach so yes you've written about it but there are some learners who prefer text some students who love a video um and and rather than trying to please them all you can put these different elements together um but putting it together in a way that makes sense uh, so you can break that process down. Because what we do with even most student portals, of course, is it's on the web. Where? <laughs> Where do I click first? <laughs> and, and, and and that's sort of the process that through sequencing that really um an advisor can really help a student with is that, you know, this is step A, step B. Have you considered this? Have you reflected on this? Um, before you really go forward, you need to make a decision about X, Y, or Z. And and that's sort of the of a general approach, which what you do again, because flipped advising is based upon a curricular and an instructional approach. And as I've liked to I've said before, and I'll say it again, um Virginia Gordon created it. As far as I'm concerned, it's a unique approach. It's not one um, that oft, often is talked about. Nakata, but she did it pretty successfully. Flipped advising back in the late 1970s with pen, paper and pencil. So, um, you know, it 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 has a long history. It, it, it didn't emerge just because someone invented a computer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's, that's important. You, you, are such a wealth of knowledge. You have such great uh, information about the history and progression of Nakata. Um, something that always intrigues me though, is uh, some of these names that you drop. So you name drop hmm. Virginia Gordon pretty frequently. Well, and uh, hmm. for me, you know, for being a K-State master's of advising student, uh-huh. that's like hearing, uh, tolkien or homer or something you know i'm like this mythical figure that i've only ever read they're brilliant yeah, art, well, uh, chapters and whatnot but um yeah i i know virginia was a great mentor for you tell yes. me a little more about that relationship
3: well i mean she was my mentor i mean i, I got very very fortunate that um uh again you dumb luck just dumb <laughs> luck Um, I'd say so. You know, I I was going through on a PhD in social studies ed, and I was moving over. I I did a dissertation on on learning styles and and, and curriculum uh, at an alternative high school. And uh, I was finishing up. I needed to get a job as a graduate assistant. She had a position that fell open mid-year, and I went over and interviewed. I had no idea who she was. I knew little about advising. And she looked at my background did a few things and said okay I'll hire you and that that's that you know again so I I, I got lucky and just fell into it um and but when I mean, I mean, she was so impressive uh she was the most down to one of the most down to earth persons I knew um, she could talk to anyone um she was uh, a person who was extremely uh dedicated to her profession uh she had a great sense of humor and that's what i really liked about her too is that um uh, she she was just like talking to some any, any other individual who was just who's your best friend and you just could be very direct with but she also was a very very good administrator and you know there were, were times when she had to uh tell me to you know fly right <laughs> <laughs> And, and and those were good interventions. <laughs> right,
2: right. Yeah. I did I appreciated in your in your last interview in episode 24 you said um she was known for developmental advising but she was yes. very prescriptive with you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, that's true. And and a, a number of my close friends too. Um yeah, she yeah. but I, what I would I say it was like the old notion of challenge and support. And you know, it would be you know, okay. Oh, that's a good idea. When are you going to write the article? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hadn't gone that far yet.
2: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's that's great. And, you know, hey, that's something, too, I wanted to ask you about. You know, yours, yours too, was a name I had only ever, you know, seen attached to articles I read before I had the pleasure of being introduced to you by our mutual friend, Becky Ryan. Yes. Um, <laughs> who fun fact, it was a mentor to our mutual friend, JP via Vicencio. So mm-hmm. I, I hope to one day have my own JP or George that, that goes back and says, Jamie was my mentor, <laughs> but, uh, you will. yeah, you I will. haven't found that. Student. So will
3: Matt, Matt already has him.
2: <laughs> well, I did want to ask you about, um, yeah, publishing with Nakata, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's you've done so many great things, uh, where, you know, what's, what's maybe some piece of advice you have for folks wanting to get started, and dip their toe in.
3: Uh, for me, um, if you look, I, I co-wrote a couple of articles first with Virginia and, you know, it was sort of like, uh, how do you ride this horse? And she basically taught me. Um, and, uh, because I was not a strong writer. I don't, consider myself a strong writer still, but um, what I found was helpful was having that guidance and um, having someone to run drafts past, uh, clarifying the idea, um, and then getting into it and having someone to critique writing style. and and that was one of the things that as as far as you know for, for me i always tended to write in the passive voice and 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 trying to convert my head to think in the active voice was one of those things that uh said oh, how can i do this <laughs> it doesn't compute <laughs> it doesn't compute uh so uh but she was she was good at that and then also you know getting out and doing it on your own but i i think that at the end of the day if you have a passion about something um is what's is what's important um you know and and to write about it and uh because you know you might be doing some scholarly articles or uh reading other ones and you you have a point to add to it Uh, i mean i think that it's one of those things that it it has to come internally i mean uh, writing is an internal process for me um There are some people, I guess, who can grind things out, and I'm I'm envious of them, but I'm not one. Every time I finish an article, I say, well, that's my last one. I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) (laughs)
2: and where would the association be if that was ever true
3: <laughs> well, there's many many good writers in Nakata. many many true so it's um true. so that's uh but you know it is i mean it's just one of those dynamics about uh getting used to it and um hunkering down and and one of the big things i think that people have and it's i think the hardest thing right now in many ways is time and again i don't know how other people are but um i think that Time, to me, is one of those elements that is just critical in terms of trying to get some stuff, in in terms of being able to think, um, because life is so rushed at times now. And and you, for example, I'm able to go out and walk and try to pull my thoughts together. And the idea to say, I'm going to get up and write from uh, 8 to 8.45 this morning, three paragraphs, that's not (laughs) going to (laughs) happen.
2: Right. I was I was certainly envious of you last week uh talking about your 5-mile walks oh. during the conference because man I didn't have time for uh, any walks but uh <laughs> those to and from different session rooms and whatnot.
3: <laughs> right. Right. Exactly.
2: It would have been nice to have that time to clear my head, but um speaking of time, you know, we've had a great time here today. Um do you have any other suggestions for our listeners?
3: Well, one of the suggestions I would certainly make is if uh, if you're interested in this conversation, if you want to see whether or not I accurately portrayed the, the book The Great Upheaval uh, in a way that is the way the authors intended it, author Levine and Scott Van Pelt, I would encourage you to take a look at it. I do think it's one of the more thought-provoking books on higher education I've seen in a number of years. And I do think that uh, it works at two levels. One is it can help uh, those in the field of academic advising look at what is occurring to their institutions, but I also think that it offers the opportunity for academic advisors to think about their own future and their own career paths and which direction they may want to uh, head in the future, because at the end of the day, I think that uh, some of these things are coming up very, very quickly, and um, you can see it every day and and again, um, all you have to do is open up um, Uh, In higher ed today, um, yesterday, I think there was a story about how most institutions are going to keep their enrollments up through the start of autumn term because they don't have students. And one of the things that they talked about in the book is what's going to impact higher ed the most, the baby bust demographics. Uh, they they talked about um, in there about uh, the growth and the development of these external sources to higher education that are coming in from the private sector. We're seeing that. So it's one of those things that for one's own uh, sense of awareness that I, I would recommend that book. So that's 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 what I would close on.
2: Great. Thank you, George. Thought-provoking indeed. I really appreciate it. I'm sure. Well, our listeners you. do. Absolutely. Pleasure as always, my friend.
3: Absolutely, Jamie. And uh, good to see you again. And I wish to uh, thank uh, Matt again for uh, helping us along with this and again, providing us with the platform in order to do this.
2: Absolutely. Agreed. All right. Take care.
3: Take care. Bye.
0: George, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Always refreshing to hear your perspectives about the current model of advising as well as what the future holds for advising. And thank you, Jamie, for coming back on as a guest host. You're the best. And just like that, episode 60 is in the books. Give this podcast a follow on social media, mostly everywhere, at Advising Podcast, YouTube at Adventures in Advising, And also check out the podcast website at adventuresandadvising.com. Make sure to take some time for yourself. Take care. And as always, keep advising.